Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the Jewish Studies Channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Benjamin Gempel to talk about his recent book, Anti-Jewish Riots in the Crown of Aragon and the Royal Response, 1391-1392, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Professor Gempel is the Dina and Ellie Field Family Chair in Jewish History at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. He specializes in the history of Sephardic Jewry of the medieval and early modern periods. You can hear more from Professor Gampel in his video lecture series on the history, society, and culture of medieval Sephardic Jewry, available on his website. Our topic of conversation today is his book, Anti-Jewish Riots in the Crown of Aragon and the Royal Response, which was granted the 2016 National Jewish Book Award, uh, Nachum M. Sarna Memorial Award in Scholarship. The book is divided into two sections that mirror its title. The first is a detailed study of the violence of 1391-92, organized according to the geographic regions of the Iberian Peninsula. Using a vast array of archival sources and sensitive to the historiography, Professor Gampel painstakingly sets out what we can know about the riots, both from the victims and the perpetrators, detailing each episode to form a picture of the period as a whole. Central to the book is the question of how and why those tasked with protecting the Jewish communities failed to do so. To this end, the second section is structured around three members of the Aragonese royal family and their response to the violence as it unfolded. The two sections together provide both a deep macro and a micro study of this crucial period in Jewish and Spanish history, exposing us not only to the story and context of the two often voiceless victims, but the lives of those responsible as well. It's a narrative of tragic violence and the failure of the royal alliance. Good afternoon, Professor Gampel, and thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, Moshe. It's a pleasure to talk with you. In your introduction, you mentioned briefly how this book came to be uh, and the long period of time you you spent researching and writing it. Um, Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book? Sure. Um, It's quite a pleasure to reflect on the uh, actual process in finally completing a book that's been germinating inside of you for so many years. Um, Professionally, as you've mentioned, I'm a teacher of Jewish history, and my specific area of expertise is the medieval jury within the Christian world. I've always spent my time in terms of my research on the Iberian Peninsula and what today is Spain and Portugal. Now, both Spanish historians and Jewish historians have long been aware, although this is a topic that I would say the average history buff may not be conscious of, that a crucial time for Jews and for later Spanish and Portuguese people is going to be the events that took place in 1391. While Jewish historians and Spanish historians are quite aware that the Jews were expelled from Castile and Aragon in 1492 by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. Less is known about events that took place a century before 
that I think all historians would agree, at least in hindsight, led to that momentous expulsion. So the events that I am talking about are riots that racked the Kingdom of Castile and the Crown of Aragon. It started in... um, 1391, in fact, in June 1391, and came to a close in April 1392. It always surprised me that no one had actually done a comprehensive study of these events. Sure, people talked about a few of the riots here and there. And after beginning scratching at the surface, I realized that one of the major challenges, and it's not something simply to be dismissed, was that we have hundreds and hundreds bordering on thousands of documents about these riots. So the good news is that the documents exist. The challenge is the actual number. And where do these documents exist? They exist in a number of archival repositories in cities, towns, and villages in contemporary Spain. So the topic was there. My interest was there, and my willingness simply to slog through hundreds and hundreds of documents, apparently, at least in retrospect, was there as well. Wow, um, that's quite a story. And in reading the book, you really get a sense of the daunting challenge of going through all these records. Um, number one, not only through, through the number of records, but also through the fragmented nature of each individual location um, and the way in which the violence unfolded there. I was wondering if, to begin, you can tell us what happened in 1391 and 92 and why this was such an important moment in Jewish and Iberian history. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, Just to pick up on your last comment, the challenge for the historian who works with archival documentation, and let me explain. In other words, you go into a repository that's kept documents dating back hundreds and hundreds of years And as you said, Moshe, quite correctly, that each document, let's say it's a letter or it's a town declaration or it's a fragment of an inquest, only gives us one little glimpse into what has taken place. And it's precisely the ability to just gather little fragments of information and try to synthesize them into a story that makes it challenging compelling, and ultimately, uh, you have a great sense of accomplishment. Now, why, as you said, why was it worth all the effort? I'll tell you. In 1391, it's possible that you could argue that the events, the anti-Jewish riots, were the most devastating that ever befell the Jews in Christian Europe. Now, it's hard to do comparative tragedy. Uh, Jews were, as many people know, massacred during the First Crusade of 1096. Others might be aware that in uh, 1648 in Eastern Europe, uh, the Chmielnicki uprising against the Polish government also uh, resulted in a couple of thousand at least deaths of Jews. But one could make the point that 1391 was devastating, both on a personal level. Jews were killed. Jews were injured. Jewish property was destroyed. 
and Jewish institutions were devastated. But I think what ultimately, and it's in a way beyond the scope of my book, but one of the reasons that I wanted to study these anti-Jewish riots, is that hundreds, hundreds, thousands of Jews as well in the riots and in the wake of the riots amidst the fear and the trembling and the horror, Jews converted to Christianity. And what we do know, those of us who have traced the history of these Jews and then of these converts called new Christians, we know that it's precisely the identity of these new Christians. The question of whether they were indeed faithful to their new religion of Christianity or were they still very much connected to their Judaism that it's precisely that question which roiled Iberian society in the 15th century. And although beyond the purposes of our book or our conversation today, pretty much we're all agreed that it's that question which ultimately led to the expulsion of the Jews. Ferdinand and Isabella felt that with the removal of the Jews from Iberian soil, um, these new Christians would able to be more faithfully and more well integrated into Christian society. So from a Jewish perspective, the riots of 1391 led to one of the most repercussively sad events in Jewish history, the expulsion of 1492. And for Spanish historians, it really, 1391 signals the end of what at least on the surface seemed like Jews and Christians and Muslims living together. The term that they use, the romance word, the Spanish word that they use is convivencia. Now, living together doesn't mean that any historian imagines that Jews, Christians, and Muslims went off dancing into the sunset every evening. But what it does at least create an image in our minds is that Jews, Christians, and Muslims did live side by side. Sure, there was jealousy and sure, there was competition and at times hatred, but they also worked together and they also lived together relatively within cities and towns and villages. And 1391 and the riots, which, by the way, also affected Muslims, uh, really puts an end, puts an end to that sense of that the peninsula of the three religions could ultimately form a successful a uh, successful society for all these three groups. Before we get in, oh, sorry, sorry about that. We'll cut that out. Before we get into the specifics of uh, your book, um, I want to give a brief overview of the book. I summarized it somewhat in my introduction, um, but could you tell us a little bit about the structure and, and why you organized it in the way you did um, and outline some of your arguments? Uh, you incorporate a lot of secondary literature and in addition to uh, the extensive chronicling of the events that you do, um, you have a number of key points that I think differ to what has been written about this uh, beforehand. Ah, okay. Let me start. And Moshe, I invite you, please, to interrupt me if you feel that certain points you'd like to be further developed and explicated. Um, I was faced with an enormous amount of data and the data, as we know, were all pointing to 
little part, fragments of this larger story of the riots. Since there hadn't been a study of the riots, I felt it was important and necessary for someone actually to tell the story. As a historian, I'm a great believer in storytelling. And I'm a believer in storytelling from a chronological perspective. These ideas of storytelling and making sure that it's chronologically ordered has interestingly become somewhat old-fashioned within the academy. But I find it the most compelling way to reach people and to deliver information. So I was faced with how to tell this story. Should I simply go from day one to over 10 months? And I realized that I had a point that I needed to make. And that, in a way, dictated the structure of my first section. That was, sometimes we talk about anti-Jewish riots, whether we're talking about it as historians or we're talking about it in conversation or we're reading articles about uh, times when Jews were harmed. And we have a tendency, and I think it's natural, to somehow look at all of these as a whole, as if, oh, the riots took place and they must all be alike. And from the evidence that I saw, I resisted that notion. I resisted that kind of synthesis. That many times, that even though there are riots that take place over the course of 10 months, Depending on what town you were in or what village, those riots may be fiercer. They may not have taken place. The the riots may only have lasted for a couple of days. And then something else. We can't imagine that the same reasons that propelled the riots in one town propelled the riots in another town. To be sure, we can always talk about economic competition and jealousy, and we would be right. To be sure, we could talk about Christian theological anti-Judaism, and of course, that was a major factor. But what I found, Moshe, was that in each area, there was another quality to the riots. There was another story to be told that really couldn't be synthesized unless I would like, I would want to lose the details. I want to show the folks why the riots in Valencia took place the way they did, where the Jews stood within the urban structure. I want to tell folks why riots broke out in Barcelona, how the Jews were perceived in that wonderfully brilliant port city. I want readers to understand that in the hinterland, in the kingdom of Aragon, in agricultural areas, how Jews were perceived. So I decided that, yes, I would keep this chronological template, but I would devote chapters to specific geographical areas so we can get a sense not only of the sweep of the riots, but of their individual manifestations. You mentioned, and I'm going to briefly quote from the book, uh, in support of what you just said, I guess, or continuing it, you say, quote, a uniform pattern to the violence cannot be discerned nor a clear profile of the rioter identified. Can you expand a little bit more on why the riots took place? I understand that maybe in each location there was something different, but what was the general milieu in which these riots took place? Okay, that's an excellent question and a question that immediately leaps to mind. In some towns, Jews were seen as allied with the monarchy. 
and often the Christian urban class within those towns looked upon the Jews as competitors. And they were also angered at the fact that the Jews seemed to have been protected by the royal family, while those same protections or maybe advantages were not extended to themselves. If we look at another area, we can see, for example, in agricultural areas that Jews also were living in small towns and were active money lenders to farmers and to peasants. If we look, for example, sometimes at the city of Barcelona, we're also aware of the anti-Jewish animus of the population. We're aware also of the contribution of various priestly elements. So when I say that a profile of the rioters cannot be discerned or to know precisely their ideology, I mean the following. Economic reasons and anti-religious reasons are always working in tandem. They are the main reason for the explosion of the riots. But there is another element there. And that element is, in a way, and in a way this is going to respond to your earlier question, these riots, riots generally have been interpreted anti-Jewish animus and Outbreaks of violence have been, been interpreted by historians sometimes only in a socioeconomic vein or only by a focus on a theological anti-Judaism. And I precisely wanted to take us away from that argument. I don't think it's a fruitful argument. I don't think we have to nail down the core cause. I don't think we'll ever be able to establish that. What we can do is speak about how these causes get blended in each area. So I guess in some way the book would read more swimmingly if I had one perspective on these riots and why they emerged. And that really leads us, Moshe, to the second part of the book, that sometimes in our search for causes, and look, we even do that today, frankly, we're aware or just around us of uh, those of us who are sensitive to political processes, that minority groups are harmed. And we spill much, much ink on attempting to understand the core reasons for the attacks. Is it racism? Is it anti-Semitism? Is it anti-Islam? Or on the other hand, are these riots really a stand-in for social and economic disparities that rend the fabric of our society. We read our essays like this all the time, and I could say for myself, I'm mesmerized by them. But reading the documents and the number of documents, I began to move away from what is the most obvious and crucial question of why exactly, to understand that Economic and religious causes are always there. And then the question is, why at this moment? Not necessarily why at this moment does it explode, but why at this moment when it explodes, it doesn't immediately stop. And that's where I began to turn my attention to those individuals in society who promised to protect the minority. 
oh, it's not they're promising to protect the minority because they're righteous individuals, but rather it's beneficial for them. Law and order is beneficial. The financial gain that they have from these minorities, that's beneficial as well. But what I wanted to know simply was, does the actual efforts, do the actual efforts by these rulers, how do they have an effect on the longevity, the endurance, the ferocity of the riots? So in some way, Moshe, I have to disappoint you that I'm not answering the question directly as you asked it. But I think if we move away from that crucial question, not move away totally, I deal with it in the book, we begin to say, yes, we expect hatred. We expect violence. But also, why wasn't the violence contained? On that note, I must say that in reading the book, this point exactly was was quite striking. Uh, In the sense, the shift from the question of why to the question of how, um, and then coming back at the end of the book to the question of why, in a different sense, really lended a sophistication to your story um, that I think in a number of other tellings of this event are lacking because it never leaves the question of why. Um, And as you mentioned, you sort of get get into that trap. Um, Let's focus a little bit more on the second part of the book. Um, The second part of the book is really this three perspectives of part of the Aragonese royal family. Had you always intended to write it in this way, the first part of the book being this geographical explanation or exploration um, of the Jewish communities and of the violence committed there, and then the second part really shifting perspectives to this, I don't want to say biographical, but in a sense, um, people-centered or individual-centered focus. And as you mentioned before, you're you're doing a number of things that are not popular in current historiography, Uh, not only your focus on narratives and chronology, but here, what you do is you focus on the ruling class, um, something that other people may frown upon, um, but I think is incredibly effective in discovering the voiceless lower class that, in a sense, would have not been explored had you not sought it from, from the ruling class. Um, so can you reflect a little bit here on that second, that, that sort of turn you make in the book and the second section in your book? I, I'm happy to. Um... In answer to one of your questions, no, I did not plan this. And that gives me a chance to talk about and something that I'm very excited about, just the nature of doing research in archives. You can imagine, I go off to Spain, and I know, at least I know in advance, that certain towns have records, quite extensive records. But what I don't know is what actually I'm going to find So all authors come, historians are no different than others, as I'm sure you know, with ideas of what it is that we wish to write about. But then you have the actual records, and the actual records can lead you in another direction. In a way, you have to let go of controlling the enterprise, and it's a tough thing to do. It might be easier if you say, I'm out to explore this aspect, and you know the materials are right in front of you. Here, I gathered materials, and I went back to Spain about, uh, uh, for this, uh, for this um, uh, project a number of times. I began to realize 
that most of my documentation came from the royal family. And this wasn't surprising. It wasn't surprising is because the royal family, the monarchy, claimed the Jews as its subjects. Therefore, they would keep greater records of what was happening with the people whom they thought was rightfully theirs. Their royal treasure, as they called the Jews, and they called the Muslims that as well. And therefore, they preserved that information. And the royal families that preserved the information then became part of repositories that preserved the information of the monarchy. And then the modern state inherited those archives. So on the one hand, I didn't expect to write the second section on the royal family, but I don't want to take too much credit. The overwhelming number of documents that I have that tell me actually what happened, and I use them, I think quite profitably in the first part of the book, the overwhelming amount of documentation comes from letters that have been preserved. And as you well know, people preserve letters from most of the time distinguished individuals, powerful individuals. We have letters from the king, King Joan, from the queen, Queen Yolant, from the king's younger brother, the Duke Marti. We have their letters that they wrote almost every day during their reign. And therefore, for the 10 months of the riots, I, for example, have letters that the king and the queen and the duke wrote every day. And it surprised me, surprised me. You know, you can be a veteran historian and you can still be surprised how the Jews appear in their letters almost every day. So thinking about making a second part of the book and focused on those three uh, members of the royal family, while I'd like to believe it was a creative act on my part, I also want to say that I was led to this creative act simply by the dimensions of the sources that I had. So what I do is, and I said it was old-fashioned and you agreed with me and I'm going to repeat it, since I'm interested in the protectors, I wanted to understand why, for example, King Joan or Queen Yolande or Duke Marty, why they behaved as they did. I couldn't simply take the story from those 10 months and then make comments about them. So you're right. I took a biographical perspective. Who is King Joan? What was his attitude towards royal authority? Was he an effective leader? Do we know about his relationships with the Jews prior to the riots? What about Queen Yolande, who was born in France? French princess. What did she know about Jews from her native France? What was her connection to the Jews of this kingdom, which she now, in a way, ran together, controlled together with her husband? And that is the queen it became clear, received most of the money for her own queenly budget for her court from particular Jewish communities. 
So it's not only attitudes towards Jews, but she had a stake in their welfare. And the Duke, less directly connected to Jewish communities, although he has some links, but fascinatingly, serendipitously, he is in the city of Valencia when the first riots break out in the crown of Aragon. He gets swept up in having to react to the violence from the very beginning. So I took that biographical perspective, one, because the documents handed it to me, and I thought this way, just like geographically, I wouldn't want to merge all these different towns and villages. I didn't want to merge the royal family into one. My whole goal in this book is to understand that synthetic observation sometimes about governmental responses or attacks on minorities too much do not pay attention to nuances of differences. And my goal is to explore those nuances. In this vein, I think what you've done is you've used these various voices to create a symphony and, and focus on what happened a total history from specific case studies that doesn't lose any of the specificity of the particular, um, but at the same time uses these things as bricks to form a series of generalizations um, and an argument that holds together. Part of this is the different voices that you bring to the story, the characters, both in the first and in the second section. And I think it would be striking to anybody who reads this as a Jewish history um, to see the second section, which is a Jewish history told by three royal personalities who are non-Jews. Um, and you mentioned a number of times in our interviews um, the Muslim population as well. So I was wondering if you can reflect briefly on these sort of voices that appear throughout the book, the Jewish population from the Christian and royal perspective, the Jewish population in the first part of the book, which is, in a sense, voices from a chronology or government records, and then also a part of the book that is less part of the book because that's not really your argument, but is present. And that is the Muslim community in the Iberian Peninsula as well. Wow. That's a large task. I'll try to um, answer all of the questions that you asked, but please keep me honest. If I've missed something, bring, please bring me back. I wasn't aware, and folks have not written about it in the past, that in a number of the towns that saw attacks against Jews, there were attacks against Muslims as well. I think that it is crucial that a treatment of the Muslims during these riots be undertaken. Sadly, unfortunately, um, given the hundreds and hundreds of documents that I had to read relating to the Jews, I wasn't able to take on that project. But still, as you read and as you turn pages, folios of these letters, registers of letters, you realize that the Muslims were attacked as well, not in all towns. A few elements do uh, pop up, and I think it's worthy of note. The Jews have a higher economic profile than the Muslims. Jews mainly urbanized, more involved in finance. Muslims, artisans in towns, and also a larger agricultural presence than Jews. While the royal family, for example, 
protect Jews either by trying to, in moments of crisis, shepherd them into castles and fortresses to protect them, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. They also sometimes, uh, and I'll talk about that later, um, give a nod, sometimes a silent nod, toward the conversion of the Jews, that perhaps if the Jews convert to Christianity, the riots will cease. What I did see, and it's admittedly a preliminary finding, because I didn't do the kind of work that has to be done on the Muslim population. The Muslims are not shepherded into, shepherded into fortresses, nor are they converted to Christianity. It's an interesting to note that although the Muslims in some ways politically had less leverage in the peninsula than did the Jews in the late 14th century, there was concern. I see this city fathers in Valencia. I talk about it openly. Some of the small villages in the kingdom of Valencia mention it. They're concerned that Muslims might invade from North Africa and perhaps take up arms against the Christians who are harming the Muslims. So in some senses, the Muslims do not have grand political power. But the perception that Muslims have governments or militaries behind them just miles away across the Straits of Gibraltar somehow inhibits the violence from mushrooming. Now, <clears throat> you mentioned the various voices. Frankly, Moshe, the voices I have because the voices of the documents are mainly the voices of governmental leaders. I sometimes can imagine what the Jewish voices are because the governmental leaders tell us, oh, the Jews came to us and complained or asked or promised to, wanted protection. I wish I had more Jewish voices. One of the sad things for me is that there are almost no contemporary Jewish sources about what is one of the most horrific events in medieval Jewish history. Oh, to be sure, like in the First Crusades, there are people who write 50 years later, uh, they write poetry later, they, they create some image of what might have taken place. But those are much later recasting of events. We really have Almost no contemporary Jewish voices. The one that I did find is one by a very famous Jew, and he's famous not, interestingly, not because of his political activity and he was politically active, not because he was a court uh, advisor to Queen Yolande, and he was, but rather because he is known through Jewish history as a great philosopher the extraordinary writer, Chastai Kreskes. We have a short letter of his, written in late 1391, to, of all Jewish communities, the Jewish community in southern France in Avignon. That's about the only voice, consistent Jewish voice that I have. Oh, I get snippets here and there. I do have have the voices of the royal family. As a Jewish historian, I mainly write exclusively on the history of the Jews. I'm writing a history of the Jews 
overwhelmingly based on sources that do not come from Jews or the Jewish community. And yet, and I thank you for this comment, I think through speaking and learning about the king and the queen and the duke, somehow we get a sense of how the Jews felt, of the anxieties that they experienced. It's not going to be a substitute in terms of voices. Even the voices of the royal family, oh, sometimes they're formulaic. So I appreciate your hearing these voices. I tried my best. But again, the archival historian can only use the voices that are presented to him. He can imagine, she can imagine, but we're always constricted by what we have. I would like to go into some of the places that you detail and the personalities and certainly come back to Chastai Kreskas. But before we do so, you mentioned a comparative case um, and the case of the Jews in Ashkenaz lands. And I was wondering if you can briefly reflect on this comparison, uh, not only of the records that they kept and, and their reflections after the facts, but some of the events that happened on the Iberian Peninsula happen in some similar ways to the Jews of Ashkenaz, first forced conversion, martyrdom. And I was wondering if you can juxtapose these two cases, what's similar between them? What's different? Can we learn from them both? Um, do they learn from one another? It's interesting because the question that you raise, and it's a very knowledgeable question, is one that has been discussed and treated really in the last century of Jewish historiography. Uh, Jewish historians have very much been taken with the Crusades, the Crusaders, the First Crusade in 1096, and their attacks on Jewish communities in the Rhine River Valley especially. And then in the attacks that take place on Iberian soil in 1391. What's interesting first to note is that you're dealing with almost 400, uh, 300 years uh, difference in time. It's very hard to make comparisons over 300 years. And it's also very, very hard to make comparisons between two different cultures. Rhine River Valley communities were communities that weren't necessarily connected in a larger political grouping. Jewish communities themselves were also separated one from the other. Oh, they had some sense that they, some of them, that they belonged to a larger construct called Ashkenaz, that they began beginnings, glimmers of being part of an Ashkenazi culture. The Jews in the Iberian Peninsula had a much more ramified political organization. Jewish historians, mainly in the last century, and we can understand this in the wake of the Holocaust and in the wake of the tragedies of the mid-20th century, have been focused on how the Jews respond in these two areas. And I must say, and I'm going to take issue with some of my fellow Jewish historians, they have set up a construct of the Jews in Ashkenaz martyring themselves rather than converting and the Jews in Sepharad, in the Iberian Peninsula, converting far more easily. I must say, Moshe, that's simply untrue. We have almost no information that's contemporaneous with the events in 1096, so we don't know. 
we really have recasting of the events 50 years later in a highly stylized, theologically infused chronicle. What we have in 1391, on the other hand, are actual day-to-day records of what take place. And, indeed, the argument of the Jews converting, I can show you, and I try to, how the pressure on the Jews to convert day after day And there is evidence of suicides as well. I don't extol one over the other. So the comparison is worthwhile just to note that there are different experiences that the Jews had. But I think what 1391 has to recommend it, and the way it's closer to 1648 in the Chlomisky massacres, is that we actually know more about these riots. And the 1096 results of the Crusades we really, our main Jewish sources are really 50 years later in a highly stylized chronicle, which is singular voices. So it's really hard to make that comparison. I, I do, well, please go ahead. I was going to say, do the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula at this point in time know or reflect on the events of their brethren in Ashkenaz? Do they draw solace, or are they challenged by the responses in Ashkenaz? Well, we don't see this from the average Jew. I imagine when you are being assaulted and attacked, you really don't have a chance to reflect historically on these events. That that elite Jews were aware that Jews were harmed in other countries, I imagine they knew and folks knew, but that didn't really help them in the midst of riots. We actually have the texture of these riots in 1391. We know what happened day to day. In, and we mentioned Chassai Crestus, and we want to come back to him. For a man who has learning, as Chassai Crestus had, who was a diplomat, who was a letter writer, in his account, and his account is not written under the pressure of horror, but rather in a moment where he imagines incorrectly that the riots have come to an end. He then can cast those events within certain traditional forms, forms of martyrdom versus conversion, faithfulness or lack of faith, God's grace or God's hiding God's face. That's a highly stylized reaction. And while these highly stylized reactions are interesting, and in fact, a project that I'm working on is precisely to discover more and more of them, I don't think that as a historian, as a historian of the detail of the events, it's not that helpful to us. reading the letters of the king and queen day after day after day. Now, this is quite hubris, and I apologize. I sometimes might feel that I know more of what's going on than he did. Not that he wasn't interested, but just simply, I have the chance to turn in a way the pages of the newspaper day by day and to see little details. Or rather, I should say it in a less pompous way and in a more accurate way. Crescus may have known far more details than I did. 
But in writing a letter, he wasn't interested in conveying detail. He was interested in conveying theological perspectives, as leaders often do. And we have to take it for what that is. We've been talking about these riots and about the violence. And I was wondering if briefly, and I understand that each one is sort of specific, but you can give the audience a a sense of what was going on. What would a riot be like? You talk about 10 months. Um, What was happening over the course of these 10 months? And what was the Jewish community experiencing? Great question, because I'm going to, as my mind is wearing, I'm going to give you two examples. And then... If I may, I'll also give you examples from the King, Queen, and Duke to give you a sense of texture about their lives and their decisions as well. Let's take the first riot in the Crown of Aragon, which takes place in Valencia. And we have a number of letters from the municipal authorities, from the Duke, from the King, from the Queen, from the city council. We know that Imagine an early Sunday morning in Valencia. It's July 9th, summertime. And there are youths traversing the city from one corner to the other. Who is leading the youths? We don't know. But they're carrying banners. Banners of white cloth with blue crosses stitched onto them. And they cross the entire city of Valencia and they're standing in front of the Jewish quarter and the walls that enclose the Jewish quarter. And they begin to scream, Die, Jews, die. Muiren, Jueos, Muiren. Oh, my goodness. You can only imagine what the Jews might be feeling. Jews are frightened. All accounts say, although the details they disagree on, the Jews rush back into the quarter. They attempt to close the doors, the portals of their quarter. A few of the Christian youths, some of them have already penetrated the Jewish quarter and they're caught inside. One Christian kid gets his fingers caught in the door. These tiny details which add texture and fabric to the moment. He begins to scream. The Christian kids in the quarter begin to scream. They no longer see the Jews only as this theological enemy, but they're frightened. They think the Jews might harm them. Folks were milling about in the plaza in front of the Jewish quarter, the Plaza de la Figuera. They begin to amass. And the Christian children are screaming now that the archdeacon of Castile, they're referring to the anti-Jewish preacher Ferrante Martinez, is going to come and forcibly convert them. And if they don't wish to convert, they'll be killed. The Jews lock the quarter door. Some municipal leaders, or maybe the Duke himself, who's awakened, who's aware, he comes from dinner, he rushes over. They don't want to open the door for him. They're frightened that the mob is going to come in. Then Christians begin to climb up 
on sewage pipes overlooking the Jewish quarter, in houses, because the houses were connected one to the other, and they begin firing into the Jewish quarter. They begin jumping onto the roofs of buildings, and a massacre takes place. Jewish institutions are destroyed, Jews are killed. And we know we have records, July 9th in the evening, there are priests who are involved in the riots as well. And some of them put up a cross on the highest point of the city. And the sense was amongst the Jews, and they're told that if they would convert, the riots would stop. They wouldn't cease to be murdered. Wow. Wow. You understand how Jews react in conversion and fear. And I'm going to move to another town. It's uh, further up the Mediterranean coast. Not, uh, the crown of Aragon had three, constitu- had three constituent areas, a number more, but the kingdom of Valencia, principality of Catalonia, the kingdom of Aragon. Here we're talking about the city of Tortosa, which is technically in Catalonia. City of Tortosa. There are riots against the Jews in the city, and the Jews, some of them rush into the fortress. Riots are put down. A couple of weeks later, more riots, more Jews come into the fortress. Now you have Jews there. There are Jews who have already been forcibly converted. We have records of Christians together with some of the Jews who became new Christians traveling up to the fortress day after day to see their relatives and also to tell them that things are bad in the city, not to convert for belief in Christianity, but one time on a Sunday, this is August the 13th, they're telling them, you know what? We hear there are going to be more riots in the town today. Come with me. Come down to the city. Some Jews do and join their new Christian family members, and some don't, and some stay in the fortress. You really get a sense, and we don't have this sense in any of the other medieval massacres, the texture, the hourly texture of what it's like to be a Jew in the riots. I'm now going to pause, and I'm going to move, Moshe, if I may, to the second half of the book. I know we're moving, we're switching subjects, but if the audience can switch with me, I appreciate it and come along. Just like these different geographical areas presented different kinds of riots. The king and the queen and the jack, to say it as my friend jokes around, the king and the queen and the duke, they may not effectively protect the Jews, but if you Focus on them as individuals, a biographical perspective, if you will. You learn about the possible reasons or the variety of reasons why sometimes minority groups are not protected. The king, and it's only from reading thousands of his letters, seems to be a king who is torn not just torn whether he likes the Jews or not, though he has a record of anti-Judaism, having accused the Jews of stealing the host from churches while he was a prince. 
But you have a king who is of uh, two minds about his royal responsibilities. As much as he wants to patrol the borders and protect his citizens and collect taxes, he is also quite the gourmand. He's also quite the musician. He is also a person who loves to hunt. <clears throat> and I, by following him day after day, I am able to observe how the Jews are on his docket, but so is hunting on his docket. And he's in a conflict. How tragic it is from the perspective of Jewish history that sometimes the reason why Jews aren't protected isn't necessarily because of anti-Judaism, at least clear anti-Judaism, but also because there are other things to do. Now that itself may reflect a prejudice against Jews, I'm sure. One document, one letter, in fact, I reproduce a picture of the letter in the book, is a letter that the king writes to the royal falconer, his royal falconer. And I have to tell you, when you're flipping through his letters and you come across falconry, you figure, oh, that has nothing to do with my topic. But here in a letter to his royal falconer, he is very upset. The riots in Valencia have broken out. His advisors want him to travel to Valencia to put an end to the riots, but he has a problem. The falconers has, haven't delivered the birds they've been promising for months. And if he leaves, will they find him if he's on the road? The lives of Jews are in the balance, and he's concerned about whether his hunting birds will come on time. It's one little vignette. Now let me interpose one thing. Maybe it helps us to understand historians, but it will also help us today, really in our own current contemporary lives. Even as I read about the king, and I may not applaud at all his vacillation, his inability to commit, if I don't empathize with the king, if I don't try to get into his head, if I don't try to think as the king thinks, and it does require a leap of empathy, I then can't write about him. I then can't appreciate how he's torn between Jews and falcons how he wants to go to Barcelona, but why not take out a day to, to um, hunt down some egrets on the shores of the marshes outside of the city? That's also attractive. So the king, he's caught between his responsibilities and his desire to live a pleasurable, aesthetically pleasing life. The queen, who I mentioned before, most of the money of her court comes from the Jews. Very much wants to protect the Jews. She's upset that nobody is including her in some of the correspondence. Yes, as she's the queen, but it's still authority, monarchic authority lies with the men. And I watch the way she writes and how she writes in her letters and how she uses the king's name to try to make sure the Jews are protected. She doesn't want the Jews to convert. She'll then lose their taxation. Yet, the queen, by reading the letters, I realize, because she talks about her illness, she's pregnant. King and queen had not yet ha had an heir to the throne. She's hoping she's carrying a boy. Her pregnancy is difficult. 
was able to see Moshe that when she takes ill, there are no letters coming out of her court protecting the Jews. So you have a king who is caught between his, the pleasures, the aesthetic pleasures of life and his duty as a king, a queen who very much, not necessarily because she loves Jews, but wishes to protect them for her own financial reasons. But that's in second place to producing an heir to the throne of the crown of Aragon, the only thing that will cement her legacy. And the Duke Marti, on the other hand, who was the third player, in a way a minor player, but the only member of the royal family who was actually caught up in the riots, the only one. And we know about his opinions prior to 1391. He was very much, very much seemed to be in favor of conversion of Jews. This is, after all, the late 14th century millenarian sentiment flourishes, since the end of days are coming. But he learned something in Valencia. You know what he learns? He learns that conversion can sometimes put an end to riots. We watch the Duke arranging for conversions in some towns in Catalonia. I came across these documents. Wow. Negotiating with the Jewish community. I'll let you keep this. You can do that. I'll give you 10 years free taxation. Negotiating. The reason why the Duke was so interested in peace and quiet was his major task was to embark on an expedition to Sicily to secure the island, which was in the hands of the crown of Aragon, but was threatening to slip away. He can't afford riot and unrest, especially in the port cities. And he seems to throw in his, clearly show his hand and throw in the lot that the Jews should convert. So there are elements in 1391 that are specific to 1391. Here, Moshe, we have a duke who is arranging conversions, negotiating details. So a minority group is never secure. Never secure as to maybe where the ranking of that minority group is in the ruler's mind. And that can change from day to day. Thank you for that uh, dramatic retelling of the events. And I think if there's one phrase to describe the book... Uh, I think it's very much a humanizing history. Um, and although it has both elements in this, this chronicle and a very granular sort of unfolding of the events, even there, I think that there's this humanizing element and that that empathy really shows through. And we see sort of the contingencies of history and how people's lives uh, are not necessarily lived as historical figures as they unplay, you know, as they play out. Um, I think one of the things that links both sides of the book and probably links the three major parties in the book, the Jewish community and the populace and the royal family, is the concept that you mentioned of the royal alliance. And I was wondering if you can briefly explain that. What is it and how does it play out in this story? Okay. Another really fine question that speaks to issues that have concerned Jewish historians over this past century. What historians of the Jews have realized is that the Jews, and this is a very large generalization, but the Jews throughout their history, and I'm mainly talking when they are not politically independent, and they're living in lands 
where they don't exercise direct political power, they do exercise political power. They had to seek allies in society that would protect them. So there were many options. They could seek allies from people amongst whom they lived in towns and villages or in the rural hinterland. They could seek allies from religious groups. They could seek allies from municipal authorities, let's say. The Jews found that the best bet was to seek alliances with the most central authority. The most central authority usually was not as prone to vagaries of policy. They could be relied upon. They were the most powerful. And therefore, the Jews, many times, not always, threw in their lot with the monarchy. That's what Moshe means when he says the royal alliance. There are many writers, historians, political thinkers who talk about the Jews and their royal alliance and why they did it and the choices they made and the literature that seems to reflect it. What I thought here in this book is that we would be able to see in a very particular point in time, particular places, if the royal alliance worked. And we realize something. I realized that we realize it, that a royal alliance is only as good as and only as effective as the royal government is willing to expend its political capital on the Jews' behalf. And as I just outlined, the king and the queen and the duke, oh, they may have been very concerned about the Jews and they were concerned about the royal alliance, but it wasn't first and foremost on their list of priorities. And then something else. It becomes clear in the book that the folks in the towns and villages and the populace, as you would say, the, the average Christian folks, they also have to believe that royal authority is going to be utilized. That is actually going to be a potent force. And here, as the riots unfold, they really get the sense that the king and the queen and the duke, nobody is riding to the Jews' defense. And then, it's not just the king and the queen and the duke, but the king and the queen and the duke have people in the field. And their authority can only be as effective as whether the people in the field who are part of the royal entourage truly believe in the effectiveness of the royal authority. So what it does is it takes the question of royal alliance with Jewish historians and political philosophers have spoken about and really see how it plays out, admittedly, in a very extreme situation. To conclude with uh, one final question, and I suppose this is in summation as well, you pick out three wonderful epigraphs for the sections of the book, for the introduction and part one and part two. And I was wondering if you can reflect on those epigraphs, um, what they mean in the context of the book and why you chose them. The epigraph for the introduction is, quote, as if the Jews had no Lord. For part one, you take something from Chastai Kreskes and from his letter that we mentioned earlier, quote, the things as they happened. And then you take a quote from Psalms for section two, 
quote, unless the Lord watches over the city. And I found that there were wonderful introductions um, to each of the sections and really summarized them, but also represented something that was a little bit elusive. Well, thank you. I must tell you, I've spoken about my book and no one has asked me about these. And yet I took great pains in choosing them. So I appreciate your calling attention to it. I was struck as I was reading through the letters that in January of 1392, as after months have passed by, months, the king and queen write a, a letter where they're really disappointed, they're dejected. After all, these are the Jews who they have relied upon for financial reasons and whom they have sought to protect. And they write that the people have not understood that the Jews were the royal property and people were behaving towards the Jews as if the Jews had no Lord. Como los judíos no habían señor. What a phrase. Why did it capture my imagination? Because the meaning is elusive, precisely because there is a double meaning here. Oh, the king and queen meant they're treating our Jews, not realizing that those Jews have a Lord and the Lord is us, is the royal monarchy. But also that was a classic, classic argument in Christian theology in the Middle Ages, even into modern times, that God, in a way, had turned God's back upon the Jews. And that God chose a new Israel, a verus Israel, people who confess Christ. Ah, the Jews had a Lord, they did. But that was before, before they were guilty of the act of deicide. So I use that on purpose in the introduction, both to show the political, um, the political vulnerability of the Jews and how the Christians also perceived the Jews' religious vulnerability. The things as they happen, Hadvarim Kehaviyatan, is taken from Chastai Kreskes's letter. He tells the Jews of Avignon, let me tell you, and it's a very touching line, let me tell you the list of the pain, the poison cup that we have had to drink from. And I thought that would be a good way, finally having a Jewish voice, introducing the various geographical areas and the pain that the Jews suffered. And in fact, Chastai Kreskes, Moshe in his letter, also moves along from town to town, geographical area to geographical area. So in a way, both the term and the structure of part one is an homage to Chastai Kreskes, the great Jewish diplomat and rabbi, halachist in part, philosopher. Part two the fragment from Psalm 127. If God does not watch over the city, 
its watchman watches but in vain. That fragment of a psalms <coughs> was used by the municipality in Valencia to respond to the king who had criticized them and didn't take care of the Jews. And they play off both meanings of the word Lord. If the, unless the Lord watches over the city, one they're saying is the Christian God is not watching over them, not over the Jews. And the second point was, you, the royal family, you're not watching over the city. And I thought that would be the wonderful prism through which to examine the king and the queen and the duke. Did the lords watch over the city? So towards the end of the book, I'm aware of these, this double meaning. And maybe I, I, if I may, I'd like to end my remarks with getting back to the Jewish population. What is it like to be a Jew in the medieval period? Oh, yes, there are great moments of positive Jewish life, and we should not neglect them. But what is it also like to live at a time where the people amongst whom you live in Christian Europe are telling you that the Lord is not watching over you? God no longer is looking out for you. And at the same time, the Jews are forced to rely on a different kind of Lord. Oh, they surely rely on their God in heaven, but they rely on a Lord here on earth, whom they sometimes imagined, Moshe, was the agent of the Lord on high. And here is a moment, what must have it felt like in 1391 during the riots, where the Jews are being killed. And if you will, somewhat presumptuous of me, but both lords don't seem to be coming to their rescue. What a sense of despair. I hate to end the interview on that note, but I would like to thank you, Professor Gampel, for joining us on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. We've been talking about your new book, Anti-Jewish Riots in the Crown of Aragon and the Royal Response, 1391-1392, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016.